Hi guys, Tess and Camille here. You're listening to The Summons. It's our second episode. And this episode, we're talking about marriage equality. It's an issue that's very dear to our hearts and it's often spoken about in ideological terms. And we felt like we were missing the legal backstory about the cases and legislation that's shaped the issue in Australia. So we sat down with senior lecturer Scott Stevenson from the University of Melbourne and former Justice of the High Court, Michael Kirby to get a little bit more information on the issue. Here's Cammie with our constitutional law expert, Scott Stevenson. Scott, thank you for coming on the show today. I'm most welcome, happy to be here. So this episode of The Summons is designed to give listeners a deeper understanding of the legal structures and laws that have brought marriage equality to societies around the world. So the first question. So a lot of people know New Zealand, the US and Ireland have legalised same-sex marriage over the last few years. New Zealand through Parliament, the US through judicial decision and Ireland through a referendum. Why can't Australia be like them? Is it structural, political, societal or a bit of everything? So the reason that different countries have taken different paths is, is basically uh, a product of the different sort of constitutional regimes that they have. So with Ireland, uh, it was necessary for them to amend the constitution to legalise same-sex marriage, and that required a referendum, which sort of explains the, the, the path that they took and that that uh, process sort of emerged out of a, a constitutional convention that looked at sort of constitutional reform in Ireland in a sort of broad sense. And one of the recommendations that, was, that came out of that was to legalise same-sex marriage and then the government sort of adopted that recommendation and put it to the people uh, at a referendum. While in the US, uh, there was the option of challenging the state of legal affairs through the courts because the US has a Bill of Rights, a Constitutional Bill of Rights, that guarantees essentially equality before the law. So there was an opportunity to sort of challenge uh, legislation and to argue that same-sex marriage should be legalised uh, to ensure that same-sex couples are equal before the law in terms of marriage. Now, these paths are not uh, op open to Australia uh, to some extent because, well, to, on the one hand, we do not require um, an amendment to our constitution uh, to legalise same-sex marriage. The High Court uh, held as much in, in the same-sex marriage case in 2014 and as we do not have a constitutional bill of rights, the legal options for um, challenging the current state of affairs, the current Marriage Act, uh, are, are basically exhausted. So the only way to uh, amend uh, or change the law on same-sex marriage in Australia is through an amendment to the Marriage Act. And then the question in Australia has been about the method by which we should change that act, whether we should just... Uh, get Commonwealth Parliament to um, amend the Act, uh, just it was, as it was amended before, to exclude same-sex marriage, or whether a, a plebiscite should, uh, should first be sort of held to ask the Australian people of their, on their views of whether we should legalise same-sex marriage before Parliament acts. And that question, you know, uh, the reason why we're having that debate is, you know, essentially it's quite political. Uh, it, in the sense that the, the two major parties have differed about which is the correct course of action and even within the government there's been different views expressed about whether a plebiscite should be held in this respect. So the, 
I think to some extent uh, Australia's views on same-sex marriage as a political standpoint are relatively similar to most of uh, these other countries insofar as there is sort of majority support for same-sex marriage and there's even been efforts uh, to legalise same-sex marriage you know, before now insofar as the ACT uh, attempted to legalise same-sex marriage a few years ago. That was uh, the High Court invalidated that effort because uh, it was held that uh, essentially the Commonwealth law on, on uh, marriage covers the field of marriage, at least, or excludes the ability of the states and territories uh, to legalise same-sex marriage. So it is only something that the federal government can do rather than the states or territories. So to some extent, the timing is a product of our sort of unique constitutional set of arrangements and the mode in which you uh, achieve change. It seems to be almost, I think, on all sides of the political spectrum, accepted that marriage equality will come at some point in time. Uh, the, the debate seems to be now about whether we have a plebiscite and to some extent a plebiscite is uh, whether that is the quickest way to a sort of achieve same-sex marriage in Australia um, or not. As in, it, the debate is, is sort of intriguing insofar as, on the one hand, Parliament could legalise same-sex marriage tomorrow, but if there is a commitment to only do it with a plebiscite or after a plebiscite, uh, then there is the, uh, the prospect that uh, if the Senate blocks uh, the legislation proposing a plebiscite, which seems likely at the moment, then it uh, might have to wait until there is a change in, in government or at least a change in the views of the governing party. Uh, but then on the other hand, maybe if the plebiscite uh, legislation is blocked, the, that will actually prompt the change and they, the, um, in the government and there will be a, a, a sort of a conscious vote on this which will um, result in a, in a quicker change. So I think the, the question now is about timing. It's a question of when, not if, in that sense. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today for the summits. Uh... My pleasure. Thanks for uh, interviewing me. So now that you have the legal backstory on the same-sex marriage issue in Australia, you're going to hear from the Honourable Michael Kirby, former High Court Judge of Australia. Michael is a fierce advocate of human rights and he's also been very publicly opposed to the same-sex marriage plebiscite. In October of last year, Kami and I were lucky enough to sit down with Michael to discuss his views. We hope you enjoy the next segment of the show. Thank you for joining us on the summons, Michael Kirby. You've been one of the more vocal public figures opposing a plebiscite on same-sex marriage in Australia. Would you mind explaining your reasons for opposing the plebiscite? The idea of a plebiscite is completely alien to the way in which we in Australia have made laws in the past. Uh, the last plebiscites we have had have been in 1915 and uh, 19, 1916 and 1917 uh, over conscription for the First World War and uh, I think in 1965 or so uh, relating to the National Anthem. Uh, but uh, this is not our usual way of making law. We are a representative democracy under our uh, constitution and our representatives in Parliament vote on things which they debate and give their reasons and um, that's the way we, we make law. This was something entirely different. So the question immediately began, 
to emerge. Why did they do this? Why did they interpose a plebiscite in the path of lawmaking, which is our normal procedure? And the answer was it wasn't done by the friends of equality or the friends of liberty and human rights. It was done in an attempt to tap into a disinclination demonstrated many times in constitutional referendums by which Australians generally say no to such proposals. Ordinary people won't know the difference between a plebiscite and a referendum. Uh, and I think that was the idea that uh, the enemies of equality were seeking to um, secure. And uh, I didn't like that idea. I didn't like in 2016 to be singled out as a member of a group who were going to be uh, placed with one further hurdle that they had to jump over in order to get uh, the issue of uh, same-sex marriage uh, debated in our federal parliament. So that's why I opposed it. And if, in fact, the Senate rejects it, I will be quite content. I will be happy. And that is how Australia does its lawmaking. Is it not better to have a vote of the people in this case, given the opinion polls suggest that people have demonstrated a greater willingness to change their views and be persuaded by reasonable arguments than many politicians? No, it's not better to have a plebiscite and a vote of the people. Uh, that encourages populism. It encourages a whole lot of hateful remarks because you've got to give an explanation to citizens as to why you are suggesting that they should be denied equality in a secular country with a secular constitution, a secular parliament, why do uh, a minority of Australians uh, have the right to impose this uh, extra step? Um, and uh, I think that has to be explained. Well, how will it be explained? It will be explained in some, some of the explanations by reference to very ancient scripture uh, in which uh, the words used are abomination. Uh, and young people are going to hear uh, really hateful things said about them, which will be very bad for them, uh, for their well-being, uh, for their self-confidence. They don't need that. Um, suicide is a, quite a big problem amongst young gay males, and I don't think that's a good path to go down. And uh, I, I, uh, I think it's better that it should be mediated through Parliament. The British did a lot of bad things, like introducing the uh, criminal laws against same-sex uh, activity, but they did a lot of good things, uh, including the rule of law, uncorrupted judges and representative parliaments. And uh, this is an attempt to impose populism on our system of lawmaking and our parliamentary process. It's not in our constitution. It's not necessary, because the High Court has said you don't need to have a referendum, uh, and uh, it would descend into really hateful um, argumentation, which would be very bad. And in any case, uh, many of the opponents have already said that they wouldn't vote for it even if the papers had voted in favour. So the whole thing uh, was really a, a, a very ill-thought-out idea, but it was thought out in the attempt to stymie uh, marriage equality, and so I wasn't in favour of it. Mm -hmm. So on the point of majority rule and minority rights, Michael, um, you've said in the past that it is exceptional and wrong in principle to commit decisions on the basic human rights of minorities 
to a majority popular vote. However, if Parliament was to legalise same-sex marriage, this would be done through a majority vote in Parliament. So what's your thoughts on that? But there's a big difference. One is done by a parliamentary process with debates and votes and a degree of formality. And the fact that those people have to sit together in the one big room and live with each other and continue to live with and work with each other after they do it does tend to mediate the uh, dialogue and tends, doesn't always succeed, often the behaviour is disgraceful, but on the whole it does tend to make the debates more temperate and the arguments more rational. There's no guarantee of that once it gets out into the streets. Out in the streets there are all sorts of uh, populist uh, opinions can be suggested and, and would be. And as for opinion polls saying that this is something which would just sail through the plebiscite, well, I'm afraid I heard the same thing prior to the Brexit uh, opinion, uh, 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 referendum uh, in uh, the United Kingdom. And uh, I just don't think, given the Australian history on constitutional referendums, that um, you could be at all sure that this is something that would sail through without uh, any problems. But in any case, it's wrong in principle and it's stigmatising a minority. It wasn't done in respect of Aboriginal land rights. It wasn't done in respect of expansion of women's rights. It wasn't done in respect of ending white Australia. It wasn't done in respect of ending capital punishment. A lot of those things, white Australia and capital punishment, probably would have been voted no in a plebiscite. So sometimes you need, in a democracy, to have rational argumentation imposed on the popular vote and that's our system of parliament. It's, it's a very sensible arrangement, I think, and it's worked pretty well for 110 years. So I guess the next question is, now that the plebiscite, um, for the time being, has effectively been ruled out, where do you think we should go on this issue moving forward? Well, we should go where we should go, which is to have a vote in parliament. I mean, we went to a whole lot of trouble recently uh, to elect a parliament, uh, we've got uh, the members of parliament in situ. Uh, normally, the way Australia deals with a sensitive question, such as uh, marriage equality, same-sex marriage, is to have a free vote. This is what we did in relation to uh, the Family Law Act in 1975. Until then, uh, divorce, as it was called in those days, could only be obtained if you proved a matrimonial fault and you had to prove adultery or cruel beatings or abandonment and so on. Uh, and that was very controversial at the time and it was given a, a so-called free vote, a conscience vote, not bound by party lines. Now, likewise with uh, euthanasia, proposals that are going the rounds at the moment uh, in uh, the territories and the states. Uh, namely in Victoria and South Australia at this very time, uh, will go before a parliamentary vote, which will be a free vote, uh, a conscience vote. And that's the way we do this sort of issue. Now, why didn't they do that? Why didn't those who wanted the plebiscite go down that path answer? Because they'd done the numbers. That's one thing politicians are good at doing, and they'd come to the conclusion that that would likely lead to a vote in favour. Every new year brings a change in the attitude. Every new generation that comes into Parliament is somebody who's met and known gay people. 
You can hate gay people if you haven't met them, uh, just like people in Australia hated Asians uh, until they began to meet them. And this is why things are changing and the decision on a plebiscite was not imposed on the Liberal Party of Australia and on the coalition uh, by those who wanted to join in the celebrations of gay equality and go uh, running around the streets and sounding whistles and having a glass of champagne. That wasn't their motive at all. Their motive was to stymie the operation. Mm. And I guess given that Canada, New Zealand, the UK and the US and many other countries, um, the Scandinavian countries in particular, have legalised same-sex marriage... Why do you think that Australia is lagging behind in this respect, that we're still struggling with this issue and it's still yet to pass? I'm afraid that uh, some members of Parliament <coughs> have begun to forget another very important gift which was given to us uh, by our British history, and that is secularism, the principle that you do not impose your religion on other people. This is one of the one of the really important constitutional principles of the English-speaking people. And it came about for a very good historical reason, that uh, England, in the reign of the Tudors, uh, had to find a solution that would allow Protestants and Catholics to live in relative peace together and not keep burning them at the stake or executing them and cutting their heads off. Uh, and so that's why the notion of a secular state emerged. And it's really been very important, and particularly important in a country like Australia, which is a multicultural country with all sorts of different races and customs and uh, creeds. And if we don't defend the secular principle, the net result is going to be we're going to have terrible warfare in our country, and that won't be good for us. So that's another reason for opposing it. You know, I saw something on the front page of the Australian newspaper only a week ago which showed the school backgrounds of the members of the Federal Cabinet. And that showed that of the 20, 15 went to private and religious schools. If uh, 15 had gone to public schools with the principle free, compulsory and secular, I think the vote might have been different in the coalition parties. Uh, it's people who have grown up with the prejudices of their particular religions, trying to force their religions on others. And when you actually look at the census and see where people are getting married nowadays, uh, straight people get married in vineyards and in parks mm. and in other um, very congenial and beautiful environments. They don't get married in the, in the same degree as in the past in churches or temples. And so why, for the majority of people who are getting married, are they being required to, uh, uh, to have a religious idea in their marriage when that's not something they've elected for? So then, Michael, do you think that in Australia we might need something like a Bill of Rights to protect equality? Well, I've been saying that we should have a Bill of Rights for 30 years now, so I, I don't know that there's anything terribly brilliant or novel in saying that this particular instance illustrates yet again the fact that we uh, need something to remind people. 
And as has been pointed out to me uh, in the case of the Victorian Charter of Rights and Responsibilities, there are two additional reasons that are very important in the actual operation of that charter. First, that the charter can then be used in schools, in primary schools and secondary schools, to teach young people the principles by which we live together in peace, the principles of universal human rights. Uh, and that binds people together and gives them common ground. And the second reason, which was brought to my notice by um, uh, one of the first parliamentary council of Victoria, uh, is that under the Victorian Charter, um, before legislation goes to Parliament, it has to be signed off as Charter compliant. And that means that a lot of the problems that might have arisen if a statute um, uh, was not Charter compliant are dealt with at that point. And the, the bill for the Act is then brought into line with the Charter or the government is obliged to say why, notwithstanding that it doesn't comply with the Charter, the government wishes to proceed with the legislation. That was something that was done by Mr Brumby's government in respect of a stop and search power. And uh, that's, that's quite a good system. And it avoids unnecessary problems coming up before courts later. But I think having something to teach children about the common principles of our democratic governance is a good thing. And, and Professor Paul, Paula Gerber of uh, Monash University has done studies of the comparative knowledge of basic rights in Massachusetts and in Victoria. And it's very interesting to look at that study because it shows in Massachusetts the children know much more about the sort of basic uh, principles of their polity than we do. So leading on from that, we've seen various cases in the common law world that suggest a Bill of Rights might not actually be enough to resolve the issue. In the New Zealand case of Quilter and the Attorney-General, the court took a rights-restrictive interpretation of their bill, which prevented same-sex marriage from being legalised by the judiciary there. Given the majority of the High Court of Australia has taken a non-expansive approach to human rights in various cases, do you think they would even use a Bill of Rights to resolve the issue if they had one to refer to? Or do you think we'd see the same thing we saw in Quilter? I think if we had just one item in a Bill of Rights an equality item, that would be very important. And looking back on our history, it would have been very important in our dealings with the Aboriginal people. Mm -hmm. We did not respect their equality. It would have been very important in respect of Asian Australians and people of different colour. We did not respect their equality. It would have been very important in respect of women's rights. When I was a law student, I was taught women took their domicile from their husband. And that was a really, functionally, a very stupid law but, uh, because usually uh, the woman in a, in a marriage breakdown uh, uh, had the children. And you would think that the place that uh, governed the law of the divorce or the dissolution would be the place where the person with, with the children would be because that's the most important aspect of, of the uh, final settlement in many cases. Um, but I never asked the question when I was at law school. I never asked, why is this um, uh, principle of domicile and why is it the domicile of the man? Of course, the answer was it was the domicile of the man because that was a, a patriarchal view. And why was it a patriarchal view? 
because some people reading their Bibles in a rather superficial way thought that, that was what God had ordained. Uh, and uh, I think it's time for us to remember the secular principle and to remember our duty to the universal human rights uh, and to remember the terrible wrongs we've done in Australia in the past to minorities to get over it and to become a, a better, kinder and more loving country, including to our own citizens. Just on the topic of, uh, you mentioned just now, uh, women's equality, uh, I noticed that you've written an article that's published in the Adelaide Law Review in 2013 um, entitled Marriage Equality, What Sexual Minorities Can Learn from gender equality. I was just wondering if you could expand for our listeners on that idea about how the campaign for same-sex marriage could perhaps learn from previous rights campaigns. I think it has learned from those uh, earlier uh, efforts to get uh, equal rights for women. Uh, first of all, it's planted the idea that just because you are a woman or just before, because you're gay or because you have a different skin colour or because you're Aboriginal doesn't mean that you should be treated in a different way. And uh, so, in a sense, it's taken inspiration and encouragement from that great struggle for women's rights, which isn't over yet, mm -hmm. but where there have been great strides made. And similarly, with same-sex uh, entitlements, um, there have been great strides made. This is not one of the greatest issues in the whole world. I mean, if, if you ask me in the area of uh, sexual orientation and gender identity, what are the big issues in the world? They're the violence against LGBT people, the hatred, the killing of them, uh, the depression that is suffered, the suicide rates. Uh, a survey of Australian employment, whose result was only delivered uh, this week, showed that 45% of young people aged 18 to 23 are not open about their sexual orientation at work. Now, why should that be so? Uh, this is It's actually lower in the case of 18 to 23 than 23 to 30. And why should that be so? Answer, because people don't think it's a good career move. They don't think it's a, a, a safe thing for them to do because they don't feel comfortable with their friends they think they'll be mocked. They think they'll be the butt end of humour. And uh, when our government and, and our parliament threatens to treat people unequally on the basis of their sexual orientation or gender identity, well, why would you want to come out? Why wouldn't you be very careful? And that's what, where we mm. need leadership. We need to get away from this attitude um, of denigration of a small minority in our population uh, and that's why my partner Jan, uh, to whom I pay tribute, 47 years living with me, um, <laughs> uh, he said we owe it to young people to stand up and to uh, give an example and not to accept any more of this discrimination and that's what I decided to do and that's what we decided to do. And it's, it's a very good thing. By the way, we've been together 47 years, still going strong, and all the weddings we've been to, they've all broken down. And the marriage is, <laughs> it's so pathetic. Straits have just broken up. Uh, all those presents we gave out, all the confetti 
we had to endure. All those boring uh, uh, wedding cakes that I, we were given a piece of, um, uh, none of that survived, but we survive. And if you can find a partner in life who is loving and truthful and tells it as it is and supports you uh, and is kind, that's terribly good for your mental health and your physical health and your general well-being. And it's also good for society. So I think it's time. This is a very conservative issue and marriage is a very conservative uh, estate and people who are in a conservative side of politics should be supporting it, not opposing. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today on the summons. It's very kind of you to give up your time, as even though you've retired from the High Court, I know you have a very, very, very busy schedule. So thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Summons. If you like our show, you can give us a like on Facebook, or soon enough you'll be able to find us on iTunes. We'd also like to take a minute to thank Sasha Haddon for making our interview with Michael Kirby possible, and to Scott Stevenson for his guidance and support during the research stages of this show.